Good morning. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. It's always a blessing to be together and be able to worship together. So thankful. Happy uh, July 4th week. John, thank you so much for praying and leading us in that. Um, that was encouraging for my heart. Um, so hopefully you get to uh, blow some stuff up this week or you get to see some things blown up this week. So only in America. Uh, we see who can eat the most hot dogs, and we blow stuff up to celebrate our freedom. So um, what's not to love? All right, this morning we're going to be in 2 John, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 13. 2 John just has one chapter, so just go to 2 John, go to verse 7. We're going to start there. Um, but before we do, I want to uh, start with an introduction. Um, and for all of you who are calendar nerds, happy middle of the year. This is the midpoint of the year. We had 182 days before today. We have 182 days after today. So enjoy it. We're dead in the middle. Um, so Robin and I like to go hiking to see some of the beautiful landscapes in America. And usually at some point on our hike, in fact, three of the four of us in our family like to go hiking. One whose name starts with an E shall remain nameless. She does not like to go hiking, but she, we drag her along anyway and uh, usually try to ignore most of the complaining. So usually at some point in the hike, Robin will, um, as she, not in all areas of life, but in some areas of life can have a fatalist tendency, will ask, what would happen right now if a wolf ran out of the woods? Or what would we do if a bear appeared on the trail? Now, usually when we're hiking, I have my pocket knife, so we're fine. Nothing's going to mess with us, right? My skills and the, uh, the size of the two or three inch pocket knife, we're going to be fine. So usually I say, I don't know, I'm hoping that that doesn't happen on this trip, that we don't have to encounter a wolf or a bear. Uh, I don't think she's thrown out any other animals, um, but we haven't hiked in Africa or other places, so probably it will be a lion or a tiger if we ever make it there. So wolf and bear attacks are rare, but they do happen. Uh, and one happened about four years ago in Banff, which is a place I hope to go to. It's supposed to be a beautiful part of uh, uh, Van like the Vancouver part of Canada. So there was a family camping. And the husband, his name is Russ Fee, he woke up to the sound of frantic shouts coming from a campsite near his Canada's Banff National Park. And from within his tent, he listened and quickly discerned the voices belonged to a man and a woman, and they were screaming for help. So he says, I threw on my shoes. My wife tossed me a lantern. I'm guessing that's a flashlight. I don't know if in Canada they call them lanterns. Uh, and he said, I popped out of the tent and just started running toward their tent, sort of yelling, I'm here, I'm here, what's wrong? So Fee, who's from Calgary, told the program that he expected to find two really scared parents whose child had wandered off into the woods. But what greeted him was much more distressing. The family's tent was in shambles, and sticking out of the entrance was the rear end of a large wolf. And what officials in the parks are calling a very rare incident, a wolf attacked a New Jersey couple. Probably they were rude to the wolf. They were from Jersey. Um, I'm just kidding, if anybody's from Jersey. I mean, mostly kidding. And two, and they were visiting the National Park. 
So um, Fee runs up on this, and the wife, uh, Eliza, says she's forever grateful that Russ came to our aid. He was our guardian angel. So it could have been much worse, and we're feeling so thankful that we're sitting here as a family. So they made it through. So what happens is, they said it's like a horror movie, that they're asleep, and instantly this wolf thrusts himself into their tent and starts tearing it up. So Matt instantly threw himself in front of his wife and his children, fighting the predator as it ripped apart the tent. Now, while her husband was trying to keep the wolf at bay, Eliza said that she's on top of her two boys, shielding them. So these are good parents. They're staying on top. Um, so Fee comes over, and he says that he immediately um, sees it, and it's, it's weird because he's never seen one outside of the zoo, and he was surprised how big it was, okay? So he says it's just much larger than any dog I've seen. So the tent's collapsing. He doesn't know what to do. So he's running, carrying his lamp, and he said, I just kept running, and I kicked it in the back hip area, and I was like I was kicking in a door. He said, I booted it as hard as I could. Now, the kick may have not done much physical damage, but it startled the wolf, so he let go of Matt, which is good, except he wasn't very happy that somebody just kicked him. So Matt manages to get out of the tent, and now he and Russ Fee are yelling at the wolf and throwing rocks, they say, that are the size of a head of cabbage. And eventually, the wolf, I guess, decides it's not worth it and takes off. But that is a terrifying if you have any fear about going camping, I probably just ruined camping for you forever. Even if you like to camp, you probably will be taking some wolf spray next time you go. I don't know if that exists, but it should. They have bear spray. I'm assuming they have wolf spray. So um, how does all that relate to today? Well, John is getting ready to issue us a severe warning against those who are false teachers in the church and teach things that are contrary to the gospel. And he's going to explain exhort us, as we'll see from part of the te text last week, that the only way to be protected is to really understand the gospel. That's what guards us, and the love of the gospel is what guards us from false teaching and the fruit that false teaching will bear in our lives and in our churches. So if you're there in Second John, I want to actually back up and read a little bit, starting in verse 5, and then we're going to read the rest of the chapter. So picking up in verse 5, it says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you may not so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching of in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. 
Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this time together this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are sovereign over things. I thank you that you are kind and gracious to use us as broken people. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would receive glory. I pray, Jesus, that you would use this time. Let us be encouraged, and I pray that you would use us, Lord, to be those who are defenders of the truth, to be those who love your gospel, and to be those who share it, Lord, in a, in a dying world. So be with us now. I pray you would help us. Help us be free from any distraction. I pray you would use me to bring yourself glory. In your name, amen. So there are five things that the Lord really kind of was impressing on my heart as we were looking, as I was looking at this passage and getting ready for it. So um, five themes. One is the gospel truth and love is so astonishing to us. In fact, it's so astonishing to us that it's hard for us sometimes to continue to believe it. And there have always been false teachers. This is not a new phenomenon. And we are perpetually tempted to add to the gospel. And false teaching is dangerous. It's very dangerous. We're going to see Jesus actually compares it to ravenous wolves. And we are not to reject unbelievers because if we did that, there would be nobody left in the world to evangelize. So when we're talking about false teachers. We're not talking about shunning unbelievers. And some things are better in person, as we'll see here in the greeting. So the very first one connects to verse 8 and 9, where John says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but will, may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have Christ. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. You see, you see uh, themes of the Trinity there. And so the first point is that gospel truth and love is so astonishing to us that it takes a miracle for us to believe it. And it takes a miracle for us to keep believing it because it's unlike anything that we encounter in life. There's nothing we encounter in life that is similar to the gospel. It's miraculous power. It's unconditional love. It's um, God doing the work for us where we couldn't do it for ourselves. And the gospel is every bit as amazing and mind-blowing and unique, but sometimes it can become numb to us, or sometimes it can begin to lose the, the luster. And it's not that the gospel has lost its luster, that anything's wrong with it. It's our hearts. Our hearts over time can begin sometimes to become dull to what the gospel is. But God is the most glorious being. He's the most beautiful, uh, I wouldn't even say thing in all creation, because he wasn't created. God has always existed. He never had a beginning. He never had an end. Nothing created him. Nothing was the genesis of him. And God's glory is the most satisfying thing that our hearts can experience. And that's what God gives us. He gives us the most satisfying thing that our hearts can experience in this life and in eternity where we'll spend all of eternity searching out his immeasurable riches and not being able to exhaust him. But we are, we're, we are we're the opposite of God in so many ways. Our hearts are full of anger and lust and greed and pride and vanity and deception. 
selfishness, self-centeredness, criticism, slothfulness, addiction, foolishness, lying. We're committing evil acts every day against a holy God. And God is holy, meaning he is, he is unable to do anything that is unrighteous. He's different. He's loving. He's faithful. He's immutable, meaning he's perfect. He doesn't change. He's pure. He's wise. He's patient. He's kind. And he's peace. So how could a people like us, who are full of deception, who are full of greed, who are full of pride, have any hope of communing with a God who is the opposite of that, who is loving, who is peaceful, who is kind. It would make him corrupt if he just overlooked everything and just said, it's not that bad. He would not be a just God. He would violate his own righteousness if he said, I'm going to make sin not that big a deal. He couldn't do that. But we, if he said, you have to be perfect to be with me, we couldn't do that. We have no hope of being perfect. Even if he gave us 10 minutes, we have no hope of being perfect. And so he had to come and he had to make a way for us. And that's what Jesus' penal substitution is. Jesus comes, he lives a perfect, righteous, holy life. He's done nothing wrong. He's fully innocent. None of us, no matter what we do, can say we're fully innocent. He's fully innocent, and yet he offers himself in place of our sin. He takes the full wrath of God, which I think we underestimate a lot, the weight of what the full wrath of God is. Jesus substitutes himself. He substitutes and becomes the penalty for what should be our penalty. His Penal substitution makes a way for us to be able to come to God. And this doesn't really compute with us because we don't have anything in our lives that are like this. You may have people in your life that are kind, that are loving, that are patient, but for most of us, we have a limit. And when you get to that limit, you know, when you've, when you've said, uh, I'm sorry, you know, that I did this again to you, um, forgive me. Most of the time, people will forgive you. But a lot of times, when you hit their limit, they won't anymore. And they'll say, I'm done with him. Or he's hopeless. Or she just burned me one too many times. And we're tempted because we don't have anybody in life who really loves us and accepts us and fully is willing to put themselves in our place, no matter how unrighteous we are toward them, to want to add things to the gospel. We're tempted when we believe the gospel the first time, when the miracle of salvation happens, we stand there and we just let the waterfall of grace wash over us. We can just feel its cleansing and you can just feel the sin being wiped away and you can feel God's joy as he looks at you and he smiles and he sees Christ's perfect record of righteousness covering you. He doesn't see the sin. He doesn't see all the ways that you have defiled his law, but he sees Christ. And when, if, you have, if you have come to Jesus and you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is God, you have felt that cleansing waterfall flow over you. And it's an amazing feeling to know that you are reconciled to God and you're his daughter or you're his son. And then after that, we begin sanctification, which means that we are still God's sons and daughters. We're sealed in his hand. Nothing can take us out of his hand. But we're still living under the curse of sin. 
And we still have sinful urges. And so no matter how many times we've said, we're going to be patient and we're not going to get angry again, we fail. And no matter how many times we've said, this is the last month that I get anxious about money and my bills. Next month I'm going to trust God's going to provide. And we find ourselves back there again fretting over things. Or we've been tempted to puff ourselves up to make ourselves look more important. Even though we know inside our identity is secure in Christ and that's all that matters, we still feel tempted to make ourselves feel more important. And when we're tempted to fear over those in our lives, maybe losing their lives or harm coming to them, even though we know God holds their lives in his hand and no one can cut their days short, but we still can struggle with fear. We know God has a perfect plan in all these things, but we sin and we repent and we sin and we repent and we sin and we repent. And over time, we can be tempted to think that pure feeling of the waterfall flowing over me of God's grace and making me his child, surely I've sinned so much that I've tainted that. Surely I've sinned so much that, that it, Jesus' grace can't just be enough anymore. I've got to do something to earn my way back to God. And we're tempted to want to take the gospel, which says we were dead, we did nothing, we had nothing to offer, believe it, and then later try to add to it. And Jesus says, no, I've done it. You're my, you are sealed in eternity. And I was thinking of it this week, and I thought of this analogy. It was helpful for me. Hopefully it's helpful for you. So the biggest ocean in the world is the Pacific Ocean. And honestly, it's the one that scares me the most. I mean, I've been in the Pacific a few times in California and uh, one time in Costa Rica. But, you know, when I go to the ocean, usually I'm, I'm pretty adventurous. In fact, so much so that it makes Robin nervous to leave our kids alone with me. So, because she thinks I'm going to be an irresponsible parent, which you can pray for her. But anyway, but when I go to the Pacific, the waves are much bigger and the undertow is much stronger. And I do not go run and dive in and, and swim out to where I can't touch because it feels a lot more wild. So let's say we're on a ship, but we go out to the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which at points is seven, eight miles deep. And we're thousands of miles away from even an island. We're right in the middle of the ocean. And you take a piece of notebook paper and you light it on fire and you drop it in the ocean. And then you start to panic that that fire is going to get out of control and burn the whole ocean and all the oceans of the world and scorch the whole earth because you were so reckless throwing a piece of notebook paper on fire in the ocean. I think people would either walk away from you because they're, they're worried that you might be dangerous and unstable, or they would, you know, grab you by the shoulders and be like, are you crazy? There's millions of gallons of water around here. That notebook paper is not going to do anything. And that's what it is with our sin. If you read in the New Testament, it says where sin abounded, and it abounds, I think anybody who's lived any length of time can say sin abounds in our hearts, it says grace abounded all the more. We cannot exhaust God's grace. We cannot sin so much that he gives up on us and lets us go. Sanctification is hard, and the work of the Spirit can feel slow. But we are still God's fully clean, washed bride. And he looks at us, and he sees Jesus, and he's happy, and he smiles, and he wants to spend eternity with us. So when we're tempted to add to the gospel, we need to remember that God has paid the penalty for our sin. He took the wrath of our sin. He's cleansed us from our sin. He's expunged our sin, meaning he's made it as if it didn't ever happen. He's obliterated our sin, and he's chose not to remember and bring it up again 
and he's going to spend eternity with us rejoicing, and we're going to rejoice in his glory, free from sin. So John is saying, don't add to it. This is what these people are tempted to do. They're either tempted to discount who Jesus was or add things and layer them on top. So John tells us, now, this is one of the older books of the New Testament. John's, you know, he was, as far as we know, probably the last apostle to die. So he's writing, and he says in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of, Christ, of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So false teaching is nothing new to the modern world. It's a phenomenon that's been around forever. False teachers were teaching about the Messiah before Jesus even came. They were saying false things about who he would be or when he would come. And there have been many people since Jesus who have claimed to be the second coming of Jesus and have taught false things about Jesus. Now, I don't think what John has in mind here are unbiblical worldviews that we know are unbiblical. There, there are many unbiblical worldviews. You know, if you take atheists who don't believe in God, or put better, they believe God does not exist. So they believe in something, they believe there is no God. Or if you take agnostics, agnostics believe we can't really know anything's true. So we can't really know if God exists. Now, that undercuts itself right there, because if we can't really know anything's true, how do we know we can't really know anything that's true? Um... And then there's, if you, if you think about just direct confrontation to God, there are Satanists, people who worship Satan, who worship evil. And all of those are certainly unbiblical, anti-biblical worldviews and way to view the world. But I think what John is talking about is those who want to exist in the atmosphere of Christianity, but they want to pollute the air with toxins so that people choke and die. And that's what John is getting at here. So if you think about in the old days, right after the resurrection, there were people proclaiming false things about Christ so, uh, or trying to add to the gospel. So you have those Jewish people who believe Jesus, they're following Jesus, but then they're trying to add on circumcision. So they're saying if you're really a follower of Christ, the only way to, to, to be sealed and proved is you have to be circumcised. And their influence is so strong, it even influences Peter. And Paul has to show up and rebuke him. And then after those, you have the Gnostics. The Gnostics were a group of people who said, Jesus wasn't fully human. They couldn't believe that God could, could be fully God and fully man. So they, so they explained Jesus as like a ghost, almost like a hologram. So he appeared, he was here, you could see him, but he wasn't really human. So he didn't really die for our sins. So if Jesus wasn't really fully human, then he, penal substitution is not real. Then he didn't really pay for our sins. He didn't have a perfect record to do it. And then in the fourth century, you have a guy named Pelagius who shows up. And Pelagius starts to teach that salvation is a human choice and that there's no original sin. So he believes you can, you can, you can become perfect on earth before you actually get to heaven. Now, he denies that all are born without hope. Now, this shouldn't sound too far from a lot of the prophecies and philosophies that are taught today, not necessarily in the name of Christ, but, you know, that we're born basically intrinsically good and we're corrupted some other way. 
Now, we could spend a whole semester or two, and Ron Jewer is much more equipped than me, to go through all the false teachers of the last 2,000 years. So I'm not going to do that. But we still have false teachers today. So if you think about um, even Islam makes reference to Jesus, but they make reference to Jesus as a prophet, not as, not as divine, not as God. Um, Jehovah's Witness, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but not part of the Trinity. So they want to take away part of his divinity. And this is a key difference between a true biblical teaching of who God is, that Jesus, God, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, have no beginning, no end, one God, three persons. It's a very different teaching. And then you have Christian universalism, which really took off a lot in the last century or two, um, basically says everybody's going to end up in heaven. There is, there, we don't know, they would, they would debate within themselves if there is a hell or isn't a hell, but even if hell does exist, it's just a remedial place that people go until they kind of learn, you know, what they need to learn to get to heaven. Um, and that undercuts God's holiness and really fails to understand our depravity as sinners. And then you have the Unification Church, which doesn't believe that Jesus was God. They think he came as a replacement for Adam to restore mankind, but he wasn't divine. But if a non-divine person was able to come and restore mankind, then maybe we don't. Maybe as a non-divine human, you can get to God without Jesus. All of these things undercut the truth of the gospel and discount who God is and elevate who we are. And there's a many others that we could go through. We could talk about Christian science, Christian liberalism, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. We could talk about the Catholic teaching about penance. There, I mean, we, could, we could go on and on. But Paul says in Galatians 1, 8 through 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as if for emphasis, he says, as we have said, uh, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. These are harsh words. I don't know about you. I don't go around in my daily life cursing people. Um, and I don't use the word antichrist like John does here. So they're trying to communicate the seriousness of what it is to try to add to the gospel and to not believe exactly what we're supposed to believe. And this is why it's essential that we pursue God and learn who he truly is. And it's essential that we know his love and his redemption for us. These things will help protect and guard our faith and protect us from falling into error. And these false teachings are really, not only have they always existed and always will exist as a result of sin, but they're very dangerous. So if we look at verses 7, 10, and 11, again, verse 7, John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then if you go on to 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So the term antichrist is serious. I mean, it's anti-Christ, direct opposition to who God is. So Jesus and Peter and Paul also have a lot to say and a lot of warnings about false teachers. Jesus in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, he gives a stern warning about false teachers. And he warns us to beware of those who come in sheep's clothing, but are ravenous wolves. I think one of the 
the the reason stories like being attacked by a wolf are so scary, especially a pack of ravenous wolves, because Jesus uses the plural. It's a it's a it's a stark picture of what uh, what we want. We want love. We want forgiveness. Uh, but if you're surrounded by a pack of ravenous wolves, there's not going to be any hope of a peaceful solution. You're not going to be able to have a rational, loving conversation and have everybody agree that it's best that they don't attack and eat you, right? This is just, you know, death and destruction. If you're surrounded by a pack of ravenous wolves, either you're dying or they're dying. There's not, there aren't any other alternatives, right? And so Jesus says, you will know them, these false teachers, by their fruit. And he also says, you'll know good teachers by their fruit. So the real driving motives will be exposed over time. And Paul and Peter give us a little bit more insight into what those motives can be. So Paul in Romans 16, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 2, and Peter in 2 Peter 2, all warn of the devastating effects of false teachers. Here's a sample from Peter. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, he says, But false teachers arose among the people, but um, false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. <laughs> and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It's a good reminder that we may feel like some go on, prospering or in their way, and how is God not paying attention? It's, God is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We are not sovereign. We don't know exactly how God is working things together in his perfect good and his will, but trust that they will not be given a free pass. And interestingly, if you read Romans 16, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 2, and 2 Peter 2, you'll see that there's a common thread of why these teachers are doing these things. And Peter and Paul connect it to greed and pride. Jesus tells us that they'll be known by their bad fruit. And then Peter and Paul are telling us what the driving motivation is, greed and pride. And here's some things, according to Peter and Paul, that their teaching will lead to. So if you follow their teaching, this is what's going to be the result. Irreverent babble. Unhealthy craving for controversy, quarrels, slander, envy, dissension, friction, deception, greed, exploitation, suspicious suspicions, and evil. False teaching is dangerous. It's very dangerous. And John does not want us to take it lightly. He wants us to search out the treasures of God and be guarded by the truth of the gospel. Now, I do want to issue a word of caution here. We have to be vigilant against false teaching. We have to be, um, you know, ever motivated to pursue Jesus and understand the gospel fully and what he's done for us. But we can be so focused on defending the truth that we split, divide, create dissension and schisms over things that are not primary. And I'm convinced in Western Christendom in the last few decades, you know, Satan is so evil. If he cannot get us to disbelieve the truth of the gospel, then he'll just try to stir us up 
and have us come out no holds bar after each other trying to tear each other down. And so if he can't get us to believe an abomination, a blasphemy, then he's going to do whatever he can to convince us to fight each other to the death. And, you know, if you've been, you know, following anything in, in Western Christian, not just within one denomination, if you look across, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of times that we're tempted to get focused on fighting each other and proving we're right and forgetting there's a lost and dying world. So I pray that we are vigilant and that we recognize the danger of false teaching. But I pray that we love and pursue and trust God is working to advance the gospel. So fourth thing I want to hit on, we're not to reject all believers or we would not be able to evangelize the world. So John's not saying don't associate with those who don't have an understanding of Christ, but you do want to treat somebody who's an atheist different from somebody who's saying they're a Christian but denying the deity of Christ. And so we know that unbelievers are going to have a wrong understanding of Jesus and the gospel, right? I mean, they have to. They're spiritually dead. So if you walk up to a dead person whose brain is not cognitively working and you try to give them a lecture on how the development of money has led to so much of the modern world and advancement, at the end of the lecture, their knowledge is going to be zero, just like it was at the beginning of the lecture, because their mind doesn't have any ability to comprehend it, because it's not, there's no consciousness. It's not living and active anymore. can't expect to talk to people who don't know Jesus and, and hope that they have a right understanding of the gospel. They're not going to until the miracle comes in. But Jesus is warning, John is warning us against aligning those who are false teachers. So those who are proclaiming to be part of who Jesus' followers are, proclaiming to be part of Christianity, but are teaching things that are contrary to who Jesus is. And he says, um, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So in those days, when you traveled around, you were really dependent upon the kindness and hospitality of other people. There weren't resorts, there weren't hotels, you couldn't Airbnb or Verbo. You had to show up in a town and hope that somebody gave you a place to stay. And John is saying, don't propagate their, their blasphemy. Don't platform them in a way by showing them hospitality so that they can continue to spread their death and destruction. He goes so far as to say, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So he's saying there's a certain level of sternness and there's a certain level of um, just kind of line drawing that you have to do with the false teacher and, and, and not trying to uh, necessarily, you know, correct or platform. So in those days, it had to do with don't let them come into your house. Don't make them part of, of, of your community. And in a, lot, in, in a lot of the world, you know, you still don't have infrastructure for travel. So you don't, you know, you don't show up a place and just, you know, you can show up at Raleigh unannounced and find a hotel. But in a lot of parts of the world, you can't do that. So you're still dependent upon uh, kindness and hospitality of other people. Um, I have some, uh, some friends that are missionaries in Madagascar. And when they go out to the tribes in Madagascar, it's very rural and very remote. And so they need 
the hospitality of the tribe, if they're gonna if they're gonna have any luck staying there, they need them to extend them a place to do it. In our world, it looks a little bit different because people can show up unannounced and they can find a place to stay. In the 80s and 90s, it looked a lot like, you know, watching a TV preacher and he would ask you to send money so that God would bless you. And unfortunately, a lot of people, and we even have, you know, family members who fell prey to that stuff. And they were not preaching and promoting the gospel. They were promoting themselves. And so if you see something like that, don't send them money. In our day, you know, there's social media. It's not only about not sending money, but not platforming these people, not rebroadcasting their false messages, you know, but staying away, not greeting them. And so it's going to look different in different cultures. But John is saying, don't mess around with this. Don't allow the teaching to come in. It will influence and it'll spread like a disease. So we've got to be vigilant and not lending our support. And then he closes the letter with verses 12 and 13. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, I am pro-technology, so this is not to be a 10-minute rant kicking technology in the teeth. I'm not some Luddite who abhors advancement. Uh, in fact, I like technology a lot because um, I like to read books and articles on e-readers. If I go on vacation, I don't have to carry like three books in my bag now. I can take a little Kindle, and you know, I got a whole library with me. I love listening to audiobooks on my phone. If I'm driving or, you know, riding my bike or whatever, it's a nice way to, to you know, listen to a story. I'm thankful we, we don't have any family that lives in North Carolina, so it's very nice to be able to, you know, Google chat or FaceTime, you know, with family that is out of town and be able to see them face-to-face -face and not only just talk to them on the phone. Um, I'm very thankful for air conditioning in a place like this. In the middle of July, in an auditorium in North Carolina without air conditioning, we'd all be on fire right now. And you'd be hoping I wrap my sermon up really quickly. So I'm really thankful uh, that I don't have to keep my calendar on paper. Or I don't have to keep my task list on a messy, you know, ever-changing piece of paper that I'm scratching out things and make a mess. I can do it all nicely on my computer. And if I don't like it, I just delete it. I don't scratch it out and have to look at it forever. Um, I'm really thankful that... People who can't be with us in person can join and watch us online. That was a blessing through the pandemic. And for some people who don't have the ability to, to be able to come join with us in person, I'm thankful that you can watch online. And I'm really thankful for things, uh, medical advancements. You know, cancer rates, uh, death rates have, have, have plunged. And survival rates have astronomically gone up in the last 30 or 40 years. There's so many things to celebrate about technology. Now... There are many things I think we can all agree to curse about technology, especially when it doesn't work. Uh, but there are a lot of things to celebrate. And overall, technology has helped us to live longer, to have more ways to stay productive and more ways to stay connected. But all that aside, there are some things that are better done in person. God created us as social beings. He made us in his image. And we're going to spend eternity face to face with God. Not separated from him, face to face. We're going to be able to behold his glory. And there are some things that are just better done in person. You know, if your grandma was alive and she's turning 90, you can send her a card, nice thoughtful card. You can call her on her birthday, maybe even video chat with her. And all those things 
would be better than nothing. But you could also drive to where she lives, park in front, get out of your car, walk through the door, go straight to her, give her a big hug, and tell her how much you love her and appreciate her while you're looking in her eyes. Do I have to tell you which one she's going to prefer? There are just some things that are better done in person. Some, some conversations sweet like that, some that are hard. You can text your friend and say, hey, I think you, I think you need to not cut off your relationship with your loved one. But you can also go to coffee and say, hey, I want you to know I've been praying, and I feel led by the Lord to tell you I don't think you should cut this relationship off. And some things are just a deeper connection when we're able to do them in person. Worshiping together is helpful. You can see people spending time together, young and old, like me and Larry Cordell. Um, just kidding, Larry. That was an unnecessary dig. Um, you can see parents, you know, parenting their kids. You can see people praying for each other. You can see people talking about their weeks, encouraging each other. There's just a deeper connection when we're able to be in person on some things. And so John is saying, you know, I love you. I miss you. There's a lot my heart wants to tell you, but I want to tell you face to face. And we got to trust that those things were good things, but they weren't divine inspired inerrant scripture or God would have had John write them down. And so some things we just need to do in person. All right. We're going to get to do one of those things in person right now with communion. But let me pray first. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for using broken clay pots to bring yourself glory. I thank you, Lord, for this local body that I've been blessed to be a part of for a long time. I thank you for all the men and women here who labor hard to love you, to love others, to love the gospel, to share your truth, Lord. We confess we are weak. We confess we need you. Lord, we pray that you would use us, use us in our brokenness. I do pray your protection, Lord. I pray you would protect us, keep us safe. Let us not believe lies about you, Lord. Let us also not be so quick to, to dissent that we create controversies and dissension. Lord, it is, it is a balance, and we are imperfect people who are not on balance. So we need your help, Lord. We need your spirit. I pray you would be with us. I pray you would guide us. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us now as we transition to this time of communion. I thank you for the reminder, Lord, of you taking our place. I thank you, Lord, for the grace. I thank you for your strength to being able to bear the weight of our sin, to, to experience the full wrath and not be crushed, but be able to get up and offer hope and salvation to us. I pray you would bless this time right now. In your name, amen. So we're going to move to a time of communion. If uh, you should have gotten one of these when you came in, if you didn't, um, there are some in the back. Uh, Princess can, if you just raise your hand, she can bring them over. Um, so communion is a really good reminder, and, and we have some, uh, some dear members of our church who are in Japan, and God has, has taken them there. Um, and they share a monthly update. And I read theirs a couple months ago, and he, he had in there s uh, such a good example. Um, Japan is a very honor-based culture, a very honor-shame-based culture. And um, a way that he had come up with to try to explain the gospel to Japanese people, because it's a very 
uh, unreached group of people. You know, I think just one or two percent Christian. It's a it's a very non-Christian nation. Was um, and education is very uh, it's held in high esteem there. Was to say imagine that you and I are at the end of our semester of high school, and we're taking the last test we have to take to graduate, and you uh, studied and were prepared, and you made a perfect score on it. You answered every question right. And I was lazy and didn't study at all, and I got panicked, and I answered no questions. And we're walking up to turn it into the teacher, and you grab my paper, and you erase my name and put your name, and you take my paper and erase my name, and erase your name and put my name, and so I get a hundred and you get a zero. That would seem so unjust and why would anybody do that? Yet that's exactly what the Lord's Supper tells us that Jesus did. He substituted his perfect record for our sinful record that deserved eternal wrath of God so that we could be united to God. So I want to give a moment for you to pray. This is always a good time for me to confess sin as I come to communion. Usually I'm reminded of of sin. So I want to give you a moment to pray and confess and thank God for what he's done. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, if you have not confessed that you need him and he's your only hope to God, please don't take this meal. The Bible says you'll actually bring more condemnation of yourself, but use the time to pray and call out to God and tell him that you need his salvation, that you're tired of trying things on your own, that you're tired of failing and you just need him to wash over you and make you clean. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds or a minute here to pray.